Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got a great show planned for you all today. We're actually going to start off with an article that I thought was interesting, titled, Ohio Sues Dollar General for Baiting Shoppers with Deceptive Pricing. And this article is by Jonathan Stemple. All of us have been to a Dollar General store or some kind of a dollar store at some point or another. But Dollar General Corporation, one of the largest U.S. discount retailers, was sued on Tuesday by Ohio, which accused the company of baiting shoppers with low prices on store shelves, only then to charge them more at the register. Citing inflationary pressures faced by consumers, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost said he sued after receiving 12 complaints about overcharges, including from a shopper charged $2 for a shampoo that was listed as $1 on the shelf. Yost said Ohio let stores have error rates on overcharges as high as 2%, but that testing last month at $20 general stores in Butler County, just north of Cincinnati, found error rates of 16.7 to 88.2%. The attorney general also said employees sometimes wouldn't change prices even after shoppers pointed out the discrepancies. This seems like a company trying to make an extra buck and hoping no one will notice, Yost said in a statement. We're not only noticing, but we're taking action to stop it, he said. Dollar General did not immediately respond to requests for comment. The lawsuit filed in the Butler County Court of Common Pleas accused Dollar General of violating a state consumer protection laws and a rule against bait advertising. It seeks unspecified damages for shoppers, civil fines of $25,000 per violation, and an injunction against further violations. Dollar General is based in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, and operates more than 18,000 stores in 47 states, including more than 900 in Ohio. We will keep you posted as that case plays out. And then Donald is facing another coffee-related lawsuit, and this one is even worse. No author was listed on this article, but McDonald's is enduring yet another coffee-related lawsuit. This time, as Insider reports, it's an Alabama woman who has filed a $13 million lawsuit against the fast food chain after being served a cup of coffee that contained harmful chemicals and resulted in damage to her throat and organs. According to the woman, after she realized she had actually consumed chemicals and not a normal cup of coffee, McDonald's employees refused to let her see the label on the chemical bottle. They allegedly refused to call 911 on her behalf. The lawsuit also alleges that even after the woman called 911 by herself, the staff at the restaurant she visited wouldn't let emergency responders see the bottle in question either. The takeout writes that while it has not yet been determined whether this woman will be awarded the damages she's seeking from McDonald's, there's a precedent for the popular company to make huge payouts for drink-related mistakes. The lawsuit listed other instances of chemicals being found in McDonald's lattes, iced tea, hot chocolate, and soda, the outlet points out. Fans will remember 1994's infamous Liebeck versus McDonald's, or the case in which 79-year-old Stella Liebeck purchased a cup of McDonald's coffee at a drive-thru in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The coffee then spilled onto her lap. 
she sued McDonald's and a jury awarded her almost $3 million in punitive damages for the burns she suffered. So the original case, as we kind of alluded to in this article, was Liebeck versus McDonald's, and it's also known as the McDonald's coffee case and the hot coffee lawsuit. The case itself was very highly publicized in the mid-1990s and sort of highlighted product liability lawsuits in the U.S., in particular this one against the McDonald's restaurant chain. This case actually became a flashpoint in tort reform. It was cited by many people as a prime example of frivolous litigation, and NBC News called the case a, quote, poster child of excessive lawsuits. Others say this was a purposeful misrepresentation due to political and corporate influence. Stella May Liebeck was born in Norwich, England on December 14, 1912. She was 79 at the time of the burn incident. She had ordered a 49-cent cup of coffee on February 27, 1992 from an Albuquerque McDonald's. Liebeck was in the passenger seat of a 1989 Ford Probe. That car did not have cup holders at the time. Her grandson parked the car so that she could add cream and sugar to her coffee, and so she had placed it between her legs to do so, and pulled the far side of the lid toward her to remove it, because back then they had a lid where you had to pull off a little tab to, to pour anything in it or to take a sip. But in the process of doing so, she spilled the entire cup of coffee on her lap. At the time, she was wearing cotton sweatpants that absorbed the coffee and held it against her skin, which scalded her thighs, buttocks, and groin. She was taken to a nearby hospital where it was determined she had suffered third-degree burns on about 6% of her skin and lesser degree over about 16%. She was in the hospital for eight days and underwent skin grafting. She lost about 20 pounds while she was in the hospital, which was about 20% of her body weight. This reduced her weight to about 83 pounds, which is not much at all. After the hospital say she needed care for three additional weeks, which was provided by her daughter, and she suffered permanent disfigurement after the accident and was partially disabled for over two years. She attempted to settle at about $20,000, to cover the medical expenses. Her past medical expenses were about $10,500, and they determined that her anticipated future medical expenses were about $2,500. Her daughter's loss of income was about $5,000. That made the total about $18,000. It was kind of insulting then to them that McDonald's only offered them $800. When McDonald's refused to raise this, that was when the lawsuit was filed alleging gross negligence for selling coffee that was unreasonably dangerous and defectively manufactured. McDonald's refused Liebeck's attorney's offer to settle for $90,000, and then they offered to settle for $300,000, and a mediator suggested $225,000 just before the trial. McDonald's refused all of these offers. The trial took place in 1994 from August 8th to August 17th in the New Mexico District Court. Liebeck's attorneys discovered that McDonald's required franchises to hold the coffee between 180 and 190 degrees. 
while attorneys for Liebeck said that coffee should never be served hotter than 140 degrees. So as you can see, 180 degrees is 40 degrees above that. But other establishments served coffee at substantially lower temperatures than McDonald's. The attorney presented evidence that they had tested all over the city. Everyone else was serving the coffee 20 degrees lower than McDonald's. They also presented expert testimony that coffee can produce third-degree burns in about three seconds. Lowering the temperature to about 160 would increase the time for the coffee to produce such a burn to about 20 seconds. And these extra seconds could provide adequate time to remove the coffee from exposed skin, thereby preventing burns. McDonald's countered that they had to keep the coffee so hot because it was typically purchased from commuters that wanted to drive a distance with the coffee. So the high initial temperature would keep the coffee hot during these longer trips. However, it did come to light that McDonald's had carried out research finding that customers intended to consume the coffee immediately while driving. Other documents obtained by McDonald's showed that from 1982 to 1992, the company had received more than 700 reports of people being burned by their coffee in varying degrees of severity, with scalding injuries of more than $500,000. The quality control manager for McDonald's at that point in time testified that the number of injuries was insufficient to cause the company to evaluate its practices. He argued that foods hotter than 130 degrees constituted a burn hazard and that restaurants had more pressing dangers to worry about. The plaintiffs argued that Appleton conceded the McDonald's coffee could burn the mouth and throat if consumed when served. A 12-person jury reached a verdict August 18, 1994. They applied the principles of what's called comparative negligence. And with this, they found that McDonald's was 80% responsible for the incident and Liebeck was 20% at fault. So comparative negligence actually looks at the percentage each party is at fault in a particular occurrence. Each party is responsible then for paying for their percentage of the damages. So if the parties are found 50% negligent each, then each will be responsible for 50% of the total award. But in this instance, McDonald's was found to be 80% responsible and Liebeck was about 20% responsible. Though there was a warning on the coffee cup, the jury decided that was not large enough or sufficient. They awarded Liebeck then $200,000 in compensatory damages, which is supposed to cover her medical. This was then reduced to $160,000 and then that two point seven dollars in punitive damages, which is supposed to punish or deter future behavior of the same kind. The jurors arrived at this figure from looking at about two days of coffee revenues, which was about $1.35 million for the restaurant giant. The judge reduced the punitive damages to $480,000, which was three times the compensatory amount for a total of about $640,000. The decision was appealed by both parties in December 1994, and then the two settled for an undisclosed amount out of court. So this has often been cited as an example of frivolous litigation and, quote, the poster child of excessive lawsuits. Liebeck actually died August 5th, 2004 at the age of 91. 
And according to her daughter, the Burns and court proceedings had taken their toll. And in the years following the lawsuit, Liebeck had no quality of life. The settlement had actually paid for a live-in nurse. Since this case happened, McDonald's has not reduced the service temperature of its coffee. Their current policy is to serve it at about 176 to 194 degrees, relying on more sternly worded warnings on their cups, which are made of rigid foam to avoid future liability. Although it does continue to face lawsuits over hot coffee. Similarly, as of 2004, Starbucks sold their coffee at 175 to 185 degrees. So it's an interesting case. And the whole fact that the woman in this other case is suing for chemicals in her coffee is terrifying as well. In any case, we're going to move ahead to the main case for the day. And we're going to talk about Sally McNeil. And this case is interesting because they just had a documentary that came out on Netflix about this woman. It's called Killer Sally. I highly recommend that you go check it out. It's a, a well-balanced presentation of the facts in this case. They definitely cover off on both sides, both the victims and the perpetrator. But Sally McNeil was born on May 29, 1960. She was born in Allenton, Pennsylvania, and she had a pretty tough upbringing. She's said to have experienced violence so frequently that she thought that it was the way it was in every home. Her father, Richard Dale Dempsey, was an alcoholic who was frequently abusive to her mother. To cope with this, Sally spent all of her time developing her athletic skills, and she became a very competitive athlete pretty early on. She swam, dove, and ran and enrolled in East Stroudsburg State College, which is now East Stroudsburg University of Pennsylvania. She wanted to get a degree and become a gym teacher. But about three and a half years in, with only one semester left, she ran out of money, and she ended up having to drop out of school. She married her first husband at that point. His name was Anthony Loudon, and they were together for four years, and they had two children together, Shantina and John, before they separated. McNeil, in order to make ends meet and to have a career to support her family, joined the United States Marine Corps. Eventually, she reached the rank of sergeant and won the U.S. Armed Service Physique Championship twice in the late 1980s after she picked up bodybuilding. However, in 1990, Sally was demoted from her position as sergeant for a poor behavioral record. She was said to have had anger issues, been very violent, and often lashed out at others. Her behavioral record also meant that she could not re-enlist in the armed forces after serving her time. This was ultimately what led to Sally being discharged from the military. As I mentioned earlier, Sally started bodybuilding during her time in the Marine Corps. It was there she met Ray McNeil, who was a competitive bodybuilder. It is said that the two met in June 1987. The two dated for about two months before getting married and settling into an apartment in Oceanside, California. However, it was alleged that it was only a few days after marrying that Ray began abusing both Sally and her children, often choking Sally regularly. After she was discharged from the military, Sally had to find other ways to support herself and her children, as well as Ray's burgeoning career in bodybuilding. 
and she found that she could wrestle men on video for about $300 an hour, earning her the moniker of Killer Sally in the videos. This was kind of a fetish, I guess, at the time, where there were men who would buy these videos of muscular women wrestling average men. But Sally was able to make enough money to let Ray leave the Marine Corps as well and concentrate on his bodybuilding career. However, at this time, it was said that Ray had started to use anabolic steroids, and this contributed to his violent behavior. Ray competed in the 1993 Mr. Olympia competition, placing 15th. He also took up some professional wrestling and acting classes, as well as some stand-up comedy, where he performed his material in free comedy shows at the Comedy Club in La Jolla, in San Diego. Despite the fact that Sally says that Ray was violent with her during this time, she was also said to have been violent. She got arrested for beating up a mailman, and she beat up a woman who she had accused of sleeping with Ray. This led to February 14, 1995. A 911 call comes in from Sally on that day, where she tells them, quote, I just shot my husband because he just beat me up. She alleged that she suffered years of abuse before she snapped. She also claims and maintains that she shot Ray, her husband, in self-defense when he, spurred by roid rage, started choking her after she accused him of cheating on her. In the Killer Sally Netflix special, she claims that she came home for Valentine's Day to celebrate with her husband and he had been gone. And when he arrived late and she asked him where he was, that this kind of set him off and he began choking her to which she needed to defend herself. The police transcript reads that Ray slapped, pushed her down on the floor and started choking her. At that point, she squirmed away ran into the bedroom and took her sawed-off shotgun out of its case in the closet. She shot Ray twice, once in the abdomen and once in the face. Evidence, though, during the trial questioned the validity of this story because of her body language during the police interviews and the trajectory of the rounds fired into Ray. One of them showed that he had to have been fired upon while he was on the floor. There was also blood spatter on the living room lamp, which contradicted her story that he was coming at her and she needed to defend herself. She did claim self-defense at the trial, but in 1996, Sally McNeil was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. She appealed numerous times on a variety of grounds, including improper jury instructions, and her conviction was actually overturned by the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. This resulted in the granting of a writ of habeas corpus. The state of California then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, who reversed this ruling and remanded the case back to the same court for further action. Ultimately, Sally's original conviction was reinstated. McNeil served out her sentence at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. Sally McNeil was granted parole by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation May 29, 2020. At the age of 60, she married once again 
to a man by the name of Norfleet Stewart. She met him through the Veterans Transition Center support group. She currently lives in Northern California and works in a warehouse and has reestablished her relationship with her two children. So it sounds like she has actually made something out of her life. When you see the interviews with her in the Netflix special, Killer Sally, she does sound remorseful and she tells her side of the story. But you also hear the story from the victim's point of view as well, from his friends and family who were also interviewed for the special. But it it was an interesting story and you definitely feel compassion for both sides of it. I highly recommend that you go check out the Killer Sally special on Netflix. It's very interesting. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!